Welcome to the When I Grow Up podcast with me, Katie Philo. Each episode, I interview a guest about the trials, tribulations and joys of growing up. My guest this episode is author, broadcaster and podcast host, Emma Gannon. Growing up in Devon, England, Emma always loved to write. So it was perhaps inevitable that she went to study English at the University of Southampton. Upon graduating, she embarked on a successful career in journalism, working at publications such as The Debrief and Glamour. Emma's affinity with the internet led her to create her blog, Girl Lost in the City, in 2009. Over time, this side hustle gathered momentum, and her passion for writing prompted her departure from Condé Nast to build Control-Alt-Delete, a book about growing up online, which she later parlayed into a podcast by the same name. This podcast has now had over 2 million unique listeners since it launched. In 2018, Emma published her second book, The Multi-Hyphen Method, an essential new business book for the digital age, in which Emma dispels the stigma of being a jack-of-all-trades and highlights how having more strings to your bow is vital to getting ahead in the modern working world. A true multi-hyphenate, Emma is also a columnist for business magazine Courier, lectures at the Condé Nast College and is an ambassador of the Prince's Trust. Emma Gannon, I'm delighted to welcome you to the When I Grow Up podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's so bizarre being a guest because I'm normally <laughs> doing your side of things, but I'm very honoured to be here. So I'm going to begin where we always begin, which is I want to know a bit about a younger Emma. What was she like and what did she want to be when she grew up? I didn't have any idea what I wanted to be when I when I grew up, but I think it's so funny with you know looking at a career and how it evolves because things make sense only in hindsight. I find that you can then tell yourself this story of like, oh yeah, I did this and then I did this and wasn't I clever because I did this. And it's all such accidents and happy mistakes that work out and all of these routes that you think make sense, but they actually don't. So everything was just, you know, obviously I had some sort of strategy in what I was doing, but a lot of it was really fluky. So when I grew up, um, like as a young me, I was just so obsessed with writing. I had so many diaries. I would make collages like all over my walls. I was just obsessed with writing like poems and short stories. And I was actually such a weird kid because I used to write my parents like letters. And (laughs) I used to write my friends like really soppy poems. I'm like, for God's sake, that is so cringe. But I was clearly a writer from a very early age, but I didn't know anyone literally anyone who earned money from writing it's just not really a thing that you did really where Mm. I grew up so I grew up in the countryside in Devon which is obviously now I look back and really appreciate that as being really idyllic but I actually found it really boring and I would literally just daydream in my bedroom of moving to a city just couldn't wait to get out and um yeah so I I just knew you know all my parents friends and everyone that we knew around us had really traditional jobs and I think that's the case when you grow up in like a small village you know you know like a baker and a butcher and a doctor (laughs) and a lawyer and it's like everyone has this clear role in life and I just knew I wanted to be creative but I didn't I didn't think I'd make any money from that I just wanted to do it you know alongside anything else and It feels like the internet has played a big role in your growing up and you obviously wrote your brilliant book, uh, Control or Delete, How I Grew Up Online. As you said, you didn't really have any role models or examples of people making a living from doing something creative. Do you feel like the internet was that window into a world that you actually could exist in? Yes, 100%. And I think I joined Twitter during university or something. And actually, I'm so glad that I didn't have a phone or, you know, all of these different like social media platforms when I was at uni I think I got Facebook obviously but it wasn't an addiction it wasn't something that I spent loads of time on I really was in the moment when I was at school and university and I just don't know what it must be like now to have this constant distraction growing up because I know that I would have been that girl on Instagram comparing myself to everyone else during a time of vulnerability I'm older now and I know that I like my body and I know that my value is based on the things that I do, not the things that I wear. And I know all of that now, but back then I I would have been so sucked into it. And it actually makes me feel sick because I don't think I would be kind of the, the person I am now. Actually, I think I'd be very, very insecure. And my confidence, I think, came from not being on it 
in that way. I mean, I had a, obviously like a big white, <laughs> big computer in the house that was like in a spare room. And you like, it takes you two hours to turn it on. So you're just like, oh, I can't be bothered. Um, and my friends would come out, come over and we would build websites and take photos of each other and, you know, go on MSN. But I feel like that's just totally different from the constant the constant scroll exactly it wasn't like connectivity at the drop of a hat it was like allocated a bit of time and then we'll go and play outside or do something else it was just I just find it crazy I don't know how we're ever going to explain it to a generation of people who have just grown up being just to be able to be connected because I'm, I'm really like that like you said grateful that I remember a world without the internet and a world with because you can appreciate yeah. both and understand the value of having being switched off and being in in the real world basically yeah, and it's funny because with my first book, Control Alt Delete, I mean, I I know so much about publishing now. I know so much about the industry, and I you know I read the bookseller and I talk to publishers and agents, and I like figure out how people are marketing things. And I look at the bestseller lists, but when I first published that book, I just didn't write it for any other reason than how amazing would it be just to capture this that crazy time in like the early noughties where we were all growing up in this kind of naive world of learning how to code on MySpace and like learning all these things actually were very useful probably later down the line but I don't know I just thought if I don't write this book I'll probably forget all of those funny little things and I definitely wrote it for other millennials you know it definitely had a very niche audience I don't think anyone really read it who wasn't a young millennial girl but that's fine that's kind of why I wanted to write it and so it's interesting now kind of with my second book and I know we'll talk about that later but it's like found a such a much wider audience and it's just been interesting you know how books find their own audience and you can't predict how they perform with yeah. really because yeah, I yeah like you said your first book is just completely relatable on every level like I feel pretty much every millennial will have experienced you know the chat rooms MSN racing home to you know sign on like it's all this stuff that is so relatable but it's also like maybe in the future, a fragment of, of, of life that the Generation Z kind of growing up beneath us will have no idea about. And I wonder if they'll be curious about in any way. Maybe. It's funny because I do, I do a lot of talks still about the first book, which I find interesting because I'm like, I've moved on. <laughs> it was like two <laughs> years ago. And, and it was nice that, you know, sometimes I get asked to like talk on a panel about the book. And I was actually away last week in Sharjah, which is near Dubai. It's kind of, well, it's in the UAE, but it's not very well known. But anyway, I did a talk and it was uh, 15 and 16 year old girls and boys in the audience. And I was talking about the book and they were interested, but it was so funny how, how old I felt. And like, I'm still in my 20s. And they were looking at me like, you did what? And I just find it really funny because, you know, even if someone in like 50 years just finds my book in a library and read and like flicks through it and is like, what is this? I just find that quite funny. Yeah. Someone might use it as an essay at university in a footnote somewhere to explain <laughs> the internet. <laughs> yeah. I, I always think because I like when I'm trying to teach my mum or even grandparents technology, I would just get so frustrated and I just hope that I'm never going to be that person in the future where like someone, someone younger than me is trying to teach me something and I just can't grasp it. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, it's funny because I, I also wanted to like, I, I guess I kind of wanted to defend millennials. Like, I feel like that's the mission I've been on for a few years mm -hmm. is I just wanted to write something that kind of explained why we are the way we are. Because I obviously don't want to generalize and we're not all the same, but there are slight aspects of how we grew up and how we were introduced to technology and how we were fed kind of you know, these lies, I think, of how our future would be. And things have changed so much that this ladder of success that was promised to us, it's not there. And I think that's what's so confusing about, you know, just trying to navigate the world at the moment and figure out yeah. what we want to do with our lives. That's exactly it. Like, because we were kind of at that crossroad or, you know, fork where we still had very traditional career advice and traditional careers laid out ahead of us and made decisions based on those. But then we were also at the birth of, you know, the internet and the opportunities that come with the internet. And I feel like so many people I know are just kind of straddling those two still. Um, it's really hard because I think we grew up with expectations that we were going to have that solid career. But then we also know that we, we could do other things like you're doing. Yeah. And it's funny because the definition of success for so many people older than us 
you know, they still look down on blogs. They still don't understand really what a podcast is. Like, obviously, you know, a lot of people do that. I don't want to generalize that no one knows anything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I know for a fact that if you said I work at the BBC, people's eyes would light up and be like, wow, you're doing so well. But the irony is that I know that I'm probably earning more money than I would at the BBC from my own podcast. Like, I, I genuinely am and it's just really funny because and I know that's not an indicator of success alone but why can't it be seen as something just as worthy why do we have to you know try and sum up what we do with these fancy job titles we can make our own success I know I totally agree and I I think that when the next generation come in I, I mean I just think this modern workplace is not going to exist in the way that it does now and like you said I think we are in this really un- sometimes uncomfortable in-between point with the people above us in workplaces who have forged out those very traditional careers and then this generation who are yeah like I said kind of trying both um but sometimes don't have the confidence to because like I you know I definitely can admit that when I can say I work at the BBC and have done it it's just like it's just this constant validation that you're like yes I'm doing I'm doing what was expected of me and and it's good (laughs) because people know what it is um which is ridiculous which is an easy thing to do it's and it's very tempting and so can feel great and also of course you want to learn from the experts and there's so much you know that that brings so much to a career but it it doesn't have to be the only Mm. thing and you alluded to this earlier about this idea of online identity and how you were glad that you didn't have it in your kind of formative years growing up because you feel like it would have really changed your the fundamentals of kind of who you were and how you perceive yourself um and I remember there's this part in your book which you just said everyone is looking at everyone else's feeds to try and work out what the truth is about other people's lives but mainly worrying about creating their own online identity how would you feel that your identity has changed online and as you've grown as well that's a really good question I think that I'm just in reflection mode in general at the moment because I'm turning 30 next year and I know that's not you know I think people are very dramatic about turning 30 and I don't think it's it should be scary but it is a new decade and I find anything that's new really exciting and I love a new year I love new goals I love like this feeling of a fresh start so I think what's interesting is how I've started using it in a different way just in general my 20s I was hustling so hard like I I was doing all these side hustles and coming home from work and blogging and working on the weekends and I wrote my first book on like Sundays I I just couldn't really stop and I was very obsessed and I was very obsessed with what the internet was giving me because you can see how rewarding you you can see how quickly something can spread and you can see how quickly if a blog post takes off you get emails from people being like oh do you want to do this or do you want to go on this trip or do you want to write for our magazine it was just so tangible and I could just see how my career was really moving very quickly and I think I just didn't want to take my foot off the pedal so I used I, yeah I overshared I blogged about everything I was constantly on Twitter like constantly and I look back and think god that was really manic and and really not what I want to be doing now but I still I really enjoyed it I, I wasn't I didn't hate it I loved it so what's interesting now is now things are going really well I suppose I've established myself you know in the industry there's not this mania around it anymore there's actually quite it's quite tranquil now and I I I I don't feel like I need to be constantly putting myself out there anymore I feel I guess this is the way careers go is you you really try 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 and then you can just relax a little bit And that's the thing, if you hadn't done all the hustling and those Sundays working, there's no guarantee that you would have wound up where you are now in a position where you can balance your your online self and your social media kind of presence with actual just quality switching off time with friends and family. Yeah. And I also think that I know there's been a bit of backlash to the side hustle narrative and people are like, oh, you're telling people to have no life and you're telling people to, you know, not look after themselves. And what about self-care? And why would you want an extra job? Like, you know, all of this stuff that's very sort of backlash against a trend, which I understand. And I, I, I actually agree. I think 
the point is, is that it's a very competitive industry, as is anything. So if you want to make it in this fast paced competitive industry, you do have to be slightly obsessed with it. You can't just put out a blog post like once a once every two months and expect to get a book deal. I think it's just one of those things where unfortunately time and effort and the grit and the perseverance and obviously a bit of luck and opportunity that I think that is when people get ahead you have to you have to be really into it absolutely and be doing it for the right reasons like if it shouldn't ever feel like an extra job and a, a chore like you should be doing it and looking forward to running home every evening and writing that blog post or I guess it turns into something much bigger but if you start with the ambition of just getting a book published I mean that's just you're, you're starting from the wrong place I think yeah totally and I and I agree with that I think that the point of having some sort of side hustle is that it should bring you joy and validation in other ways that aren't actually external mm. or leading to something shiny I think one thing that I think of is you know about my podcast as well is I didn't get paid for my podcast until about six months in and now it's my biggest money maker wow. but I, I just didn't do it for that reason and and I think the point is is that if you do something long enough I think I don't know it's 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 a weird one but I just think a lot of people give up so the ones that are still standing yeah. reap all of those rewards and it was the same with the blog I mean I wrote my blog for about five years before I made a penny off it um I wrote it for years before many people read it because I wrote it for myself yeah. and I read and I wrote it because I thought oh I'm gonna have all this content that I could turn into a book it was never gonna be wasted I was always gonna get something from it and I think that's what you need to think is it's never wasted. Mm. Even if you start a podcast and no one listens to it, well, you've just had amazing conversations with interesting people. So yeah, you're getting something from it and you're honing a skill and you're fulfilling yourself in a way that maybe your job can't cater to every interest of yours. And yeah. that's, that's something that um, I love about you is that you talk honestly about how you were in a so-called kind of dream job at Condé Nast and you have had, you did start a more traditional career, a nine to five. And you wrote in a piece recently for Refinery29 and you said, in 2010, I started a side project outside work because my job sucked my soul to the size of a raisin. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think so many people could probably identify with you on that one. Um, and I think, yeah, the internet, like growing up with the internet, um, it feels like it really did, it was that vehicle that enabled you to get to the point where you are now. Tell me a bit about, firstly, your experience in the office and what motivated you to work and then how the internet and your blog kind of chimed in and changed yeah. your perception of what you wanted. Totally. Well, I must say that I actually loved my nine to five jobs, most of them. I, I did, it got to the point when I worked in magazines that I thought, this is so dull. You're rotating the same five thin white women on the cover and I don't agree with the style of the content and the editorial and, you know, you're saying really weird things about feminism. Like, it was all very strange. And I felt like everyone was very confused and people were making really rash decisions and being like, oh, let's put this out to, you know, stir some conversation. And it's like, you really need to think through, like, what your brand is because I'm working for you and I don't know what you are or who you are. So, anyway, working for magazines was slightly strange by the end and and it's an exciting time now for new magazines to come in and, and launch and, and be diverse and have you know authority to to spread good messages but before then I worked in agencies I worked in a PR agency and a creative agency and I worked in um, like a social media agency and I loved those jobs I loved the people I loved learning about the internet I could be so geeky with my colleagues like we were all so into digital stuff and I got to travel the world and give talks and and actually they really embraced the fact that I had a blog and they really liked that so I think it's it's funny because my end goal wasn't actually to ever be self-employed I was very happy having a job and writing on the side but what happened was I couldn't do it all so I, I actually really enjoyed having these out of work projects because it all made sense together and it can be really lonely working from home. Like some days I still miss going into an office and having a team. It's not, I'm not this person that just thinks freelancing is like the best way. I actually think there's so many amazing things that come out of working in an office. 
But what happened was my boss sat me down. She was like, we love you here. And you, you know, you clearly, you clearly love working here too. But you're getting asked to do all these things. You've got a book coming out. Because when I wrote Control of Delete, I was still working oh, wow. at Glamour. And she was just like, what, you know, I don't think you can do both anymore. And I went down to working four days a week so that I could have one day doing my blog and doing all this Mm -hmm. stuff. And basically it just got all too much. And I had to leave because I was getting so many opportunities. I mean, it's an amazing situation to be in, but I just wouldn't want anyone thinking that I think like nine to five office jobs are crap because they aren't. They can be really fulfilling as well. How did you feel about making the leap? What did it feel like kind of leaving something that you felt that you did enjoy and was pretty secure to something that was totally new? Oh, God, it was so scary. I don't actually think I got much work in the first few months because I don't think I'd really put it out there that I was now, you know, self-employed. Yeah, and, and you guess you'd just done your book. So it was kind of that had yeah. been your main focus to get out the door. So you, in a way, did you feel like you didn't have that much time to think about it? And then you're obviously, you're already a hustler and you already had all the skills that you'd got from your previous jobs. So you kind of been tooled up and equipped to do what you were going to then go on to do. And it was just about finding your way. Yeah, it was, it was just exactly that. Just, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I just, I didn't have any experience of being self-employed. It was really scary. I felt really out on my own. And it was really hard adjusting to working just by myself. Um, I worked from cafes and co-working spaces and stuff just because I needed people around me. Because um, I think a lot of people say this is when you're when you love people, actually sitting at home all day by yourself can be quite, quite lonely. But then some days I love it if I'm on a deadline. It's great. I absolutely love having no distractions. It just depends on the mood. But yeah, it was a massive change. I didn't have like loads of work rolling in straight away. It was definitely something that grew over time. And I had a lot of really sort of weird negative run-ins with like friends of friends who would be like, oh, you know, um, I, I can't remember. I think I was, it, it was starting to go well. And then people would make comments like, oh, you know, you better just say yes to everything because you you don't know if you're just going to be the flavor of the month or made you know it was really weird it was like people didn't have faith that I could really make it work it was like I had to take every opportunity off the back of the book and maybe I'll go through quiet spells and yeah I just had to muddle through it really. Did you ever have moments of just kind of zooming out of the situation and looking at I I don't know I just feel like sometimes people's LinkedIn profiles tell a different story and just and just thinking oh look what they're doing though I I kind of maybe I should be doing this instead and questioning your trajectory and what you were doing. I don't know I didn't really compare myself much actually when I was when I was self-employed because I just knew that I was carving my own path I'm very I am quite confident when it comes to that I think I don't think many people are doing what I want to be doing and I genuinely don't have many people I look up to and I know that sounds really arrogant but I genuinely do feel like I'm doing something that I want to do and there's not many people that I'm like oh I want to copy your path like I'm genuinely on my own path I feel and I think everyone should feel that because there's no point looking at someone else because it's just a totally different situation like no one has had your your journey up till now Mm. no one has had that exact path so yeah I would get inspired by people I would I'm quite good I think at being inspired over comparing like I I look at people and think oh that's cool I might try that but I don't ever think oh you've got what I want that's such a good kind of cocktail I think because if you didn't have that inner confidence in your own path and that you're doing something that is bespoke to you I think some people might maybe start trying to forge a bit of a freelance life and I I actually did it for a little bit and then kind of then retreat to the security of a nine to five like I think it does take a lot of balls and confidence um so yeah I think I I really respect you for for doing that I think as well it's not for me it's not really a case of nine to five versus freelance and that's why I wrote in in the multi-hyphen method I actually try to keep in mind everyone it's not really a freelance guide and it's not really a you know, just for people in an office. I I hoped to have spread it, you know, quite broadly because I think it's all it's more about building your brand as a person because I could go and work in an office again. I could go and work like in a boardroom situation and work in a really exciting, I don't know, I'm I'm trying to imagine where, who knows, like in a big office, 
pitching and presenting great ideas to people I can imagine me doing that in the future so I think all you need to do is stay true to what you want to do and not feel like your path is set because I I'm planning to zigzag around much more than I already have like that's the point really in the multi-hyphen method is you're going to change you're going to grow you're going to get older you're going to change your priorities and actually your your career is yours and you can do whatever you want exactly. at the end of the day and mold it to suit whatever stage you are and like you said what your priorities are right now in your life so I couldn't talk to you without talking about your hugely successful podcast which the last time I checked I think it had over two million downloads which is incredible and it's by the same name as your book, Control or Delete, in which you chat to guests about their relationship with the internet. You've had some really amazing guests. I mean, you had some amazing ones from the very off. You had Lena Dunham, Seth Godin, Elizabeth Gilbert, Fern Cotton, I could go on. And in the same way that your blog, Girl Lost in the City, surprised you and turned eventually into a money earner, your podcast, like you said earlier, did the same six months in. But really, the motivation that you've talked about really wasn't, it wasn't about earning money it was just trying something new can you tell me a bit about the kind of process through which you decided to start it like as a companion piece to your book release yeah so I started the podcast in 2016 when the book came out and I was listening to Elizabeth Gilbert's podcast at the time she'd released Big Magic her non-fiction manual for creatives and she'd launched this amazing podcast alongside it and I was just getting into them and in America you know they've been huge for years the UK We've had podcasts, but I mean, I remember listening to one in 2007, but they weren't really a thing. I didn't, I didn't, I don't think. And when my book came out, I just felt actually a little bit sad when it came out because no one tells you that when you do a book, you actually, it's quite an anticlimax when it comes out because the work's over. And if you're a writer, you like, that's the fun bit is the writing and the working on it. And they're like coming up with the book covers and going for meetings and you know, having champagne when you sign the book deal. It was so exciting. And then the book comes out and it's just out. (laughs) And then that's it. That's literally it. It's on shelves. And then, yeah, you go and do some events. But the actual book itself is not yours anymore. And I I actually found that really hard. And I was really sort of down in the dumps after it came out. And I was like, I really, I'm not done with this topic, but I don't want to talk about myself anymore why don't I interview some amazing people about their control-alt-delete moments, you know, their sort of growing up, their relationship with the internet and feminism and body image and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I got Elizabeth Gilbert on as my first guest. And I suppose she was someone that I knew through working at Glamour because I, I reviewed her book for the magazine and she she invited me to a lunch to say thank you. So that, I mean, that's amazing. I, wow. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Like I used all of my contacts from my journalist career. Why not? Um, and, that, and that's what a lot of people say, you know, how did you get your guests? And I just think, well, I have been in this industry for a long time and I've made some connections. But at the heart of it, people love going on podcasts. So just ask them because all they're doing is talking about themselves for a bit. You know, it's not, you're not asking that much of people. So I interviewed her about Eat, Pray, Love and whether that book would would exist if she had Instagram. And we were just talking about the internet and creativity and things. And then, um, yeah, it just, it just kind of went up in the charts and I got really addicted to it, to be honest. I love me. I love making it. I love making it now. And it's two and a half years on. Yeah, like I think I read some of it. It's one of it's still pretty much your favourite thing to do. And it's quite amazing how as a medium, you know, you started in writing, but then you just thought, well, I may as well give this a go. And the fact that it's just so you know, anyone can just buy the mic and plug in and do it. And it's just it's just basically doing it is the is the thing that most people don't go and do. Yeah, and I think it's just the perfect medium for a lot of people. Like I hate I hate the idea of YouTube. I hate the oh, idea God, of me being too like presenting and being like hi guys this is you know that my face like I don't want to do that and I was really allergic to that but podcasting is exactly the same as having a YouTube channel you you earn money in exactly the same way you work with brands in exactly the same way it's a brilliant um platform to grow your career so I love I just love it as a medium and it's brought me you know brilliant opportunities with radio and doing stuff with Women's Hour and and I love straddling traditional media as well but so amazing having the freedom of doing Mm -hmm. your own thing. 
Yeah, and as a medium, I just, I love the intimacy of it. Like this right now, it just feels like a phone call, like a chat. Um, and you kind of just forget that there are actually people that are going to listen. And in that sense, I find it, you know, I love doing it in the actual practical act of, you know, you kind of become the researcher, the producer, the editor, every aspect of it. But I also just learn so much from every person I talk to and find it really kind of therapeutic as well. What do you have um, as standout pearls of wisdom or things you've taken from guests that really, I don't know, shifted your perspective on something? Well, uh, the Seth Godin episode blew my mind. Um, and I get a lot of feedback from that one. He's just incredible. I mean, there were just things that he said about not asking for reassurance because it's pointless and reassurance basically evaporates very quickly. So, you know, if you're working on a book idea or you're wanting to start a podcast or you're worried that you're rubbish at something, asking for constant reassurance, like, am I good? Could I do it? Shall I do it? What do you think? It's the most pointless thing in the world. And I know as human beings, we, we're programmed to do it. But he he was just saying how if you cut that out or if you try and reduce that, you just get so much more done because we don't need it. You don't need the reassurance. And that's something that I, I really took on board because with my literary agent, for example, who is incredible and literary agents, their job is like 70% getting you book deals and 30% pep talks and, you know, telling you you are good and you will be <laughs> fine. Um uh, yeah, I just started dialing down that sort of need for reassurance and it's it's genuinely changed things. And how have you seen it change things in your life? Do you just feel that you're you're kind of more decisive in what you're doing and more confident? Yeah, it's really made me more confident. It's just this idea of if you're about to ask for reassurance and it's fine to do it, of course, we all need to. But if you're doing it too much, I just think try and stop yourself. Like maybe you're writing a WhatsApp to someone and you're like you're just really wanting someone to say you can do it can you tell yourself you can do it first just test it because if you can tell yourself something first it is way more effective than someone else saying it it's a, it's just a weird one it just really clicked with me that episode um so yeah it's I recommend I recommend that one and you also had another episode with she's known as the world's first comparison coach Lucy Sheridan and you said that that has generated a reaction, like one of the biggest reactions you had, again, um, with your audience. Why do you think that provoked such reaction? And were you surprised? Yeah, I mean, that one again, Lucy just is, she's a friend of mine, and she came over to my house, and we just recorded it. This is the funny thing with podcasts as well, is sometimes I just hijack, like hanging out with someone, and I'm like, oh, I've, <laughs> I've got my mic. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I've got my microphones in the next room, can we just record this? And so with that one, yeah, it, it, it went everywhere. And I think it, she, I mean, she's amazing. And she just taps into this comparison epidemic that we are living through and talks about it very vulnerably. And actually, uh, and actually a literary agent got in touch with her after listening to that episode. So I think the power of podcasting shouldn't be, um, uh, yeah, should be appreciated. Did it change your perception or like make you reflect a bit more about how you compare yourself? Yeah, I mean, I I think that that episode as well was more or less about this strange thing that happens to us when if we see someone else doing something, then we think, oh, they're, they're doing it, I shouldn't. It's a very strange thing that I think is being passed down over the over the centuries of women, especially feeling like there's only room for a few of us. And I think that episode just really spoke to this idea of you can be happy for someone else who is doing exactly the same thing as you. It doesn't take anything from you. There's no, you're doing it, so I'm crap, or there's no, like, it's not a personal attack, basically. Someone else's success is not a personal attack on you. And I think that's why it, it yeah, it, it resonated with a lot of people. And also, Lucy is just great at practical tips. I think the, the more practical the better and actually I'm guilty of not really doing that on the podcast because I just want to chat but she gave some practical advice on you know if you if you see something on Instagram that triggers you you have you know be aware of it be aware that you are triggered you something has set you off so what has set you off write it down be you know be really honest with yourself don't just ignore it 
and sit in that uncomfortable feeling for a while and, and ask yourself, why has this person made me feel so crap about myself? What is it that I want? Because it's actually a really useful emotion. Yeah, and a tool to kind of teach you more about yourself and what you do want as well. Yeah. As I mentioned, you've obviously had some phenomenal guests so far. And I remember at the beginning of your episode with Matt Haig, you said that he'd been a dream guest for a long time. You must get so many people wanting to come onto the podcast and you probably do have a list. Like, how do you decide or pick who you want to interview? Mm, It's a good question. I don't really have an answer apart from just it's really gut feeling. I just, I, it just depends kind of who I'm interested in. And I suppose there is a responsibility to interview a diverse range of people. But at the end of the day, I, I, the episode will only be good if I feel like we have a connection. And that's the thing, especially with sponsored episodes, for example, is I will never, ever, ever agree to interview someone who makes me feel uncomfortable in any way, or I don't feel like they don't, they don't really get it, or we're not on the same page, or someone that just isn't very on brand. And I think it's hard for me to define what that means, but I only I know yeah, your really intuition. what it means. Yeah, it, I just know immediately. And it's really nice that people pitch to me. And it's nice, I get, I mean, I'll get so many emails every single day pitching people from PRs and stuff. But I'm thinking, I know that you think this is a huge platform, and it is, um, but it's not the same as you pitching to a magazine. This is something very, very personal still to me. So I'm actually more likely not to go through agents or PRs. I just want to DM someone on Twitter and be like, do you want to come on? (laughs) Yes, it still still feels like an extension of you and it's it's very authentic and true to what you are and you don't want to let it take on a life of its own by handing it over to people that, like you said, don't reflect the brand. Yeah, but I think also you have to get good at recreating the atmosphere you want to recreate in any situation, because I do get invited to junkets. If I'm interviewing someone who is like an A-lister, so Gemma Arterton, for example, or I just interviewed Hari Neff and Carrie Mulligan oh, wow. was another one that was... So it, so I have to go into this hotel environment where they're in a room and it's like people coming in and out. But I, I have my mics and it's up to me to create a warm, open episode, even if we are surrounded by people with clipboards. And you've, you've been doing this for kind of two years now, and you will have grown, you know, immensely in everything that you do from just the interviewing to the, I guess, the, the more technical aspects of it. What do you really notice about listening to the episodes you do now versus the ones you did at the beginning and the difference between them? Oh my God. Well, I would not go back and listen, first of all. Um, No, someone said to me the other day, actually, because I have a a management team who, you know, work with me on all my projects. And and, um, one of the co-founders said to me, he was like, you have got so much better at this. And, And I was like, well, yeah, of course I have, because at the beginning, I didn't know what I was doing. And isn't that amazing that you can start off being really rusty at something and really out of your depth. And two years on, you are I, I think I could interview absolutely anyone and be and be fine. And it's really translated into my public speaking. I can interview anyone uh, and keep it going and keep it flowing and not be nervous. And I hope get a good interview out of the, out of the interviewee. But that's taken 150 episodes of my podcast to get me there. And I think that's another reason why we should do things ourselves sometimes and be a bit DIY about our careers because we can teach ourselves skills. And I didn't need to go and work at the BBC for two years to learn that. I learned that by doing it myself. And I think you, you kind of have to get over the perfectionism thing because I could be really embarrassed by my first episodes and go back and delete them. But the point is, is that I'm really proud of who like me doing that because it was a bit crappy and I just started it. And isn't that the point? Is yeah. You have to start somewhere. Yeah, like you can chart your journey and see how you've evolved. And like I feel exactly the same. Like I've had so many misdemeanors with recording equipment and not really <laughs> knowing quite what I'm doing. And I get really embarrassed and I'm like, oh God, what, what am I, why am I doing this? Because you just, you know, it, it is quite vulnerable to put yourself out there. But then at the same time, I always had this thought, well, actually... I'm glad I'm doing it and I'd be more annoyed with myself if I wasn't. So, and, and, you know, if anyone has negative things to say, it's just knowing that, well, like, I, you know, just having that confidence that, you, like, at least you're doing this, you know, and, and, you, and, totally. and you're here to get better. Yeah, and I think if anyone meets you with negativity, truly, I do believe that it comes from a place of you've, you've shown someone 
what it's like to do something and you're kind of highlighting maybe someone's insecurities that they're maybe not doing something that they would like to be doing so what they'll do is try and push you down and I and I do really notice that and I and I I think it's quite interesting when you try and get into the psychology of why someone is a troll it's never ever about you yeah I mean it it might be what you've something you've said but it's not actually about you as a person it's all to do with their what their kind of issues are with the world yeah no insecurities exactly so I can't, again, not talk to you about your latest book, Multi-Hyphen Method. I feel like, although you mentioned that the idea of a multi-hyphen career, it was kind of coined in the 1980s as a portfolio career. But I feel like you're the kind of modern day representative of this idea. And for people that don't really know much about it, can you tell me what the multi-hyphen method is in your own words? Yes. So the multi-hyphen method is a part manifesto slash manual about how you can do multiple things in your life and not have to stick to one thing. So it's trying to eradicate this stigma of being a jack of all trades is a bad thing and actually celebrating and embracing this idea of being good at many things and living a life of multiple projects. And I really just wanted to write this book because I was going through a time where I was almost embarrassed that if anyone asked me what I did at a dinner party, I would reel off like 10 things and they would look at me strangely and felt really embarrassed that I I was just this jack of all trades but it makes me so happy and I love my job and I love every day being different and I have multiple streams of income I feel secure I just wanted to kind of write this positive book that was actually going against all of these annoying stereotypes about people who are portfolio careerers and you've mentioned that you want this to be kind of a conversation opener, like a starter, and to get people talking about this idea. Do you feel like that's what you've witnessed since publishing the book? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's been really interesting seeing the reaction to it. I've absolutely loved doing the book events because with Control Up Delete, it was you know a sea of twenty somethings, which I loved. But th- with this book, it's actually totally the opposite. So it's really, really young you know, school kids who are interested in talking to me about this because they, they, you know, they're the kids of today who are like, I don't want to go and climb the ladder at one job. Like, this is cool. I want to do this. And then there was, you know, the over 55s demographic of people who were retiring or looking to retire. And actually they wanted to start up some sort of side project. And yeah, it's resonated with so many different ages and so many different people from different locations. And I've loved, I've loved talking to everyone about it. And people changing their Instagram bios to like multi-hyphenate and it, it feels like it's it's been a movement of people yeah being very positive about it. And uh, as you say you're a multi-hyphenate and you have got multiple kind of streams of income and like hats that you wear some of them you would never have predicted you were going to do. How do you balance opportunities that come in your way and then decide where your ambitions really lie? Mm, that's a good question because I've got way better at saying no to things and actually I took it a bit too far this year and I basically said no to everything and I was very very picky and I was turning down so many things but it was because I just needed to kind of get a bit of a clean slate going again and again it's gut instinct and it's it's something that only you can really navigate because you you know you want to do things for the right reasons but for me it's just really simple you know simplifying it and I can pretty much put it into a few different camps what I want to achieve and that's working with more non-profits and charities like being the Prince's Trust Ambassador has brought me so much this year doing things that I feel is actually making a purpose the other thing is writing the other thing is podcasting and then the other thing is working with brands to strengthen the message of my book because so many companies want to get in on the flexible working conversation and I'm I'm happy to work with brands. I think people have really looked down on that over the years, probably because reality TV stars were plugging toothpaste for too long. But I'm so proud to be working with tech brands and like brands like Google and brands like Microsoft to really kind of use their platform, to be honest, to grow my message. And it's a two-way street and and obviously a good moneymaker. And that's been something that I've been focusing on. So I think it's looking at those, for me, that's kind of it. I mean, maybe I'll do some other things in the future, but it's not having a hundred different 
plate spinning. It's having a few different things that you love. And and it feels like money is a big part of this conversation um, because obviously a big part of the multi-hyphen method is this idea that you don't have one one stream of income and that you kind of have multiple that can open and close at any time. And I really love the fact that you talk openly about money because it's something that feels and has felt very taboo and not very discussed. And you've become quite, a, I think, a kind of a spokesperson on this in a way. And you've been on Radio 4's Money Box and you've written articles about it. Is it something that you've always felt comfortable talking about? Or is it something that you've felt that as a freelancer and as a multi-hyphenate, you've had to become more comfortable talking about? Yeah, I think it's just a natural thing. I, I, I gravitate towards uncomfortable topics. And so I just thought, oh, I'd, I'd love to talk more about money. I think it ties in with a lot of the feminism conversations that I'm interested in. I like the idea of talking about money, you know, and talking about asking for things you want. Like I'm always talking about self-promotion and asking for stuff. Well, the biggest thing really that we need to ask for is more money. And so yeah, I've I've worked with Starling Bank this year on a campaign that was called Make Money Equal. And it was about how magazines talk to men and women about money. In men's magazines, they talk about investment and um, property and how to save your money and how to stop, you know, people stealing your money when you get divorced. And then the women's magazines, they would talk about, you know, saving and, um, you know, how to get money off bags and shoes and how to splurge. And it was just, it was very, very sexist the way even now people talk about money. So, yeah, I like talking about it. And I also think that there's money to be made. And I think I've known, well, having worked with agents and things, they teach you how much you're worth. And I would never in a million years ask for the sums of money they ask for on my behalf. But doesn't that prove that I've been, we've all been probably downplaying what we're worth for far mm. too long. So mainly it's that just saying by the way guys here's the secret you can you can ask for quite a lot of money in this industry and then the second thing is I don't think I could have written this book not talking about it because I don't want people thinking that this multi-hyphen method is just for privileged people I don't want it to be this oh if you've got loads of cash lying around you can start a side hustle the point is is that I had a full-time job throughout this whole thing I I've never been given a loan I've never been handed things like that so yes I'm incredibly privileged I don't want to at all say that I'm not but this is not a quit your job book it's a start something on the side please don't risk your salary and see where it goes yeah I love that message because I think it's often really tempting to just be like oh fine if I want to get to B I you know from A to B I'll just quit my job and I'll get there just by making a big dramatic leap but these nuances and kind of building up your skills and your experiences are exactly what then allows you the confidence and ability to make that leap. But I think the reality is that, you know, money money is important. Like not many people are really in a very privileged position to be able to just make that leap. So I think it's great that you're shining a light on that. Seriously. And I think that transition period is really important. So a lot of people ask me about this, but when I wasn't sure when to quit my job, I was so painstakingly kind of um, detailed about the spreadsheet I had, which was like, how much money do I need per month minimum to survive? Just because you need to work these things out before you quit your job, or if you sidestep out of your job, is just working out, if this means a lot to you, to quit and do your own thing, you have to be, you have to take money really seriously and you have to be, you have to plan ahead and be quite grown up about it. Absolutely. And I, th I think obviously money has always felt like a big definer of success, but you've talked about how you've really redefined success now. What do you think going into your ne nearly turning 30 success is to you? For me, I think it's who I'm surrounded with. I find that a indicator of success. I mean, whether that's the fact that I'm still friends with my best friends who I've known since I'm four, you know, you're like, oh, maybe I'm not a terrible human being then if you're still my friend. Um, and, you know, personal relationships are a massive indicator of success. Of, you know, not that having a boyfriend is everything, but I live with my boyfriend. I've been with him for nearly eight years. Um, and I, I see that as success. I'm like, this is really great. And I feel like we are working on this project together of our life. And that's really, really important to me. And I think also 
funnily enough, having talked about how I was a total workaholic during my whole 20s, success for me now is genuinely being able to take a day off whenever I want. It's I, I remember Atega Uagba, who I interviewed on my podcast a while ago, she said success was basically being able to go to the cinema on a random Tuesday and, you know, Tuesday afternoon. And I think that's true for me. I think less is more. It really, really is. And the least I can possibly do, the better. I mean, I'm obviously not there yet, but that's the goal for me. The goal is to be able to do a few things really well and and not have to overdo it where biz, being busy was like this badge of honour. I love the fact that it does feel like the tides are slightly turning and that people are wanting to try and, I guess, carve out more of their own time and get, have balance, which yeah didn't feel like something that maybe even it was the big dawn of our careers. Yeah. And I also interviewed Farah Store recently. Oh, yeah, having, that episode. Um, yeah, that episode actually was was great because she really reminded me of how working hard is is a human trait. It's it's we need purpose, we need to graft and we want you know, we want to push ourselves forward and stay motivated and and actually we always need to be busy, but there's there's a balance to be had in that. I have a very quick fire round for you and I'm going to ask you what you've learned so far growing up about five different things. So firstly, what have you learned about love? I've learned that it is a compromise and sometimes you have to meet in the middle in order to make the other person happy. And what have you learned about friendship? I've learned that friendship, true friendship, brilliant friendship is often very easy when it's right. And what have you learned about money? That it can be very thrilling, but ultimately doesn't make you a hugely amount more happy. And what have you learned about careers? That they're always changing and you cannot predict what you're going to be doing in the next year or even five years or 10 years. And finally, what have you learned about yourself? I have learned to trust my gut gut on everything because I do believe we all know really what we're doing deep down. Brilliant answers and very succinct. You've got the quick fire round <laughs> down. <laughs> uh, so finally, Emma, we're all the way back to the beginning. What do you want to be when you grow up? Hmm, that's a good question. I just want to be a writer. That's what I want to be when I grow up. So hopefully I will be one because I can carry on doing what I'm doing and really feel like I am one. Brilliant answer. Thank you, Emma. And finally, where can people find you online if they want to kind of see what you're up to and follow your work? Yes, of course. I'm on I'm online. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean um, it'd be weird if you weren't <laughs> after all of this. Yeah, imagine. Um emmagannon.co.uk is my website with absolutely everything on. Um you can follow my podcast, Control Alt Delete on iTunes and you know, Instagram, Twitter, just Emma Gannon on there wonderful and yeah I would wholeheartedly recommend people go and check out your podcast and thank Thank you you. Emma for your time I so appreciate it thank you that was really fun